a podcast where the fish guys at the Field Museum in Chicago talk about marine life, new and crazy species, natural history news, and fish. Who are the fish guys? We have Dr. Leo Fozzie smith Hi, I'm the head of fishes. Dr. Matt Kermit the Frog Davis. Hi, I'm a postdoc in fishes. Dr. Eric Gonzo Algren. Hi, I'm a retired physician and a consultant for fishes. And we have two special guests this week, Dr. Shannon Honeydew Hackett. <laughs> I'm one of the curators of birds in the museum. And Paula Miss Piggy Buchal. <laughs> Hi, I'm an exhibition developer. And I am Beth, Swedish chef, Sansenbacher, your host. And this week, um, we're going a little off topic. We're going to be talking about fish, of course, but birds as well, and the importance of museums and exhibits for communicating science. Well, I know nothing about any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about Shannon's nickname. What was that? Honeydew. What, Dr. Dr. Oh, Honeydew. Oh, Bunsen Honeydew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So this is my third main exhibit that I've worked on um, in the museum. So I worked on the Mendel exhibit, which was a really good chance to get complicated science um, out to a general audience. And then kind of my heart's delight up till then was working on the DNA Discovery Center, so a way in which people could get exposed to the research that goes on behind the scenes in the museum and now into the bird hall. So my love of birds was rekindled, I think, in working on this exhibit. There's been moments, I have to say, where it was quite challenged by how hard it is to convey all the content that there is and trying to get the right wording. That passion that drives your work is what we ultimately would like to communicate. I think that's the critical um, part of it. And any, almost anyone could make a really nice exhibit on evolution or whatever if they have creativity. But the reality is why do these things have to come from the field museum? And that comes from the authenticity of the scientific experience that you bring to the table. And so that's what makes it different, right? It stems from what makes this building unique and the people inside of it and its collections unique. And so anybody can go online and learn all kinds of general things about fishes or birds or whatever. But So why would they come to the Creatures of Light exhibit at the Field Museum? Why do they come to the Bird Hall at the Field Museum? Because there's something different here. That's very true. Like, your job is to be a cheerleader for your science. And that was something that just came across in one of our educational programs. Teens really liked interacting with the collection managers and curators, especially with our paleobotanist Ian Glasspool. And paleobotany can be very, it, it's hard. It's a hard topic. It can be very dry. And so, you know, we're always, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's not terribly boring. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? So we're, not, we're, not, we're not bringing the, we weren't, we weren't bringing the teens down to see like big, you know, T-Rex bones or mammoth bones. We were bringing them downstairs to see fossilized charcoal. I mean, they loved meeting Ian and they, they rated it as one of the top things that they did. And it was because of his enthusiasm. So what did you guys change in the bird hall? Well, we actually left all the birds, which is kind of novel because most museums have taken away these kind these experiences, these trips through the diversity of birds. Most even for birds, which most people like, most museums have taken away these these overviews of birds of the world. And, and I feel like we're really fortunate to have left them in. And it's kind of a, a fairly unique worldwide experience now that people can come here and see. Uh, over a thousand species of birds of the world. So there's birds of the Chicago area, birds of North America, and then a large section uh, dedicated to 
to birds of the world. So first off, I'm really glad that we still have all of those specimens on display. And second off, we cleaned them up, which was the first and probably most critical thing that we did. Do they get dirty? They get really dusty. Even though those cases are supposed to be sealed, they're not. The last exhibition was opening 20 years ago. This is funny, but actually cleaning all of the eyeballs is what makes some of the biggest difference. So someone with a Q-tip... Look, there's that scene in Toy Story where they clean clean his eyeballs and he looks like a million times better. It was quite a production to clean those cases because essentially the main part, the main deck, was kind of rolled out and then put back in and there were four or five people kind of pulling it out. And it was just amazing to see the production that went into opening... 25 cases essentially like that and it took quite a bit of time i mean i think people don't really i think people think that we should just be able to go in and be like oh here's a new turtle we just got let's just replace the one that's on exhibit Mm -hmm. and the reality is that it just doesn't work like that it's well i mean even the ability to turn a dead turtle or in this case some dead birds into new um, mounts is a dying art form now there's very few people in the world who have the capabilities of uh of mounting specimens lifelike like that. And we're lucky that we have Tom Noski in the bird division who has that, that skill. And so those are new specimens that, um, that went in. So here's a question that I only found the answer out to very recently, but the difference between specimen preparation and taxidermy. Well, to, a specimen in that case is what we would call a study specimen. So those are specimens that are set for scientists to actually uh, use. And in birds, when we prepare study specimens, we don't make them look as lifelike as we can. So um, many of the processes are the same. We have to take out all the internal stuff so that things don't rot. You don't want something that smells like 10-day-old chicken on display. <laughs> but So we have to take out all the stuff that's inside and replace it with stuff that doesn't rot. But in a study specimen, when we take the internal bits out, we replace them with um, cotton. Inside of a mounted bird that's mounted in a lifelike display, you often use different things inside. So the body... And that's taxidermy. Yeah, that's taxidermy. Yeah. So in that case, there's different either metal pieces inside to hold the structure better and glass eyes. So the birds that are in this in the drawers inside of the bird division, I'll have white cotton eyes. It's way too expensive and time-consuming to put glass eyes into birds. But the ones that are mounted, obviously, with the goal of making them look lifelike, they have they have glass eyes. And if you do that really well, it means you know something about birds because you need to know what they look like in the wild in order to make a taxidermy mount. Like like what Audubon did with his illustrations by placing yes. them in a natural sort of environment and in lifelike action poses and make it seem like you look at them and they look like they could fly away right there. You can see people who have spent a lot of time looking at birds in the wild. You can see it in their art. You can tell in their taxidermy mounts that they know what birds look like. They know where their wings go when they're in varying forms of behavior. They know what their tail does. Yeah, if you put me in charge of it, they'd look like a bunch of like... (laughs) Like like fried chickens or something. <laughs> <laughs> Put them delicious. in a bucket and set it out. Yeah. <laughs> they look delicious. So how do you guys decide when you're? Did you reorganize some of the specimens? Like, <laughs> we're, we're at the very early stages of creatures of light, trying to figure out how to like convey the diversity in that case of 
bioluminescent animals. But in the case of birds, you guys already had, sort of had the ones selected. Yes. How do you how do you organize? Did you, or do you, how, what do you what do you do? Start with do you do from an evolutionary first, tree, or do you do like these yeah. ones are hoppy little brown birds that sit on the bottom, yeah. and these ones are big colorful birds? There's a, a tiny bit of all of that in it actually, but um, because we have sections on geographic variation, so you can see things that are like that. But no, we were constrained by uh, what people thought bird relationships were a hundred years ago, because if we had to move all of the birds, Paula can tell you just how uh, time-consuming it was just to make new labels for the birds when we didn't move the birds themselves. The taxonomy of birds, the tree of life for birds has changed so dramatically over the last 10 years that we would have to move almost every specimen in that exhibit and that we would still be on the first, we would be on the first specimen case down there if we had to do that. There's been widespread changes to the bird tree. Is that, is that true in fish, too, in, in the last uh, hundred years as uh, modern? Well, certainly the last hundred years. Uh, yeah. I mean, has it changed areas. drastically? Yeah, there are areas within the tree that have changed drastically, and there yeah. are some that are fairly consistent with what people would have suspected. Even 10 years ago, the bird tree of life outside of, so you have the large flightless things, ratites, um, ostriches, and things like that, all the week did find a, a, an issue with respect to those birds. And then you have ducks and chickens, and then everything else was a comb of unknown sets of relationships. Really? All the, right. For the major lineages of birds. Really? Even 10 years ago, that's what it looked so like. For birds, but people love birds. I, I know, mean, but I birds are really hard from uh, a tree of life I perspective. I think are hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, Darwin's and the finches. That, yeah, that but was Darwin like, actually didn't study the finches. Darwin <laughs> found the finches so complicated that he gave them to an ornithologist. So I think that's important, I mean, to keep updating exhibits all the time with this information because, you know, this is not generally known to the public. I mean, they're not going to be trolling through phylogenetic tree publications, you know, about fish or birds to find this out. and It doesn't make it to the general public. I think that's why we need to explore new ways of giving people information. Certainly, you can't change the actual physical exhibit with every scientific change, but the idea that science is a process and not an endpoint of knowledge and that what they see inside these exhibits is a snapshot in time of when people printed out the labels, but that doesn't mean that if you come back even two days later, that is actually the same kind of scientific information. And that's probably the hardest concept to get across to people is that science is not a known kind of bag of facts that everybody knows about, that it's constantly changing. And so what the reality is that people who visit the bird hall in any hall we have should expect to see changes. They should demand it to see changes, and that's what we as an institution can provide are those changes because we have real scientists who study real things and make new discoveries in that sense. It should be expre- expressed in our, in our exhibits, these changes. Paula, how hard is it to you know, keep updating exhibits like this with these changes and keeping them current? Well, as Shannon said, you cannot reprint the whole exhibition essentially every other day. So when you are developing, you are trying to put here and there seeds that make you think that things may change. So what we try to do with the, the bird hall is the family tree in the past years, since the last installation has changed, it's actually a work in progress for scientists. Scientists don't know the answers, essentially. And, every, and everything that they discover triggers new questions, which will lead to new things. And it's like that work in progress. Science is not something set in stone and everything is done. You can move to the next branch of the family tree, for example. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Why is it important to have the real specimens at all? 
like you know especially when well, we don't I, have I, like I, live we had this discussion yeah. at lunch today we, 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 don't, have, at lunch we, today. we don't have you know live birds you know they're they're dead birds you know but you know we could just create all these videos and pictures and things like that why is it important to spend all this money on cleaning up all these birds because guys like me only come to a museum to see that type of thing i could see great pictures and stuff at home behind my computer and the only reason i go to museums is to see actual real life things and specimens that's why i go to an art museum to see art i want to see the actual painting in that actual room and how it looks up close and how it looks from far away and how it feels to walk around it and the the sense of physical space that it takes up makes all the difference to me as a museum goer as opposed to having a lot of dazzling technology and simulations and photographic stuff i'm an old-fashioned type of person too i like seeing the old specimens and the old school museum stuff set up in cases i i find that just really fascinating to look at but that's that's why i come to a museum is to see real things your imagination isn't as good as three and a half four and a half billion years of evolution so when you see the real thing, you can just see the diversity and think of all of the diversity of birds created from an alphabet of four letters over tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years. That's, for me, that's just awesome yeah. to see that. Yeah. No, that's the thing. is like when we're doing the creatures of late, it's when you pull up a deep sea animal from 4,000 feet down, it's going to be, when you're bringing that up, it's going to be probably four hours, five hours to bring the net up that it's dead and being pulled and dragged behind a boat underwater so it doesn't look its best when it comes up but like in combination with a model or some videos it's like it tells the perfect story you can like you get you see how big it is you can see how when we make these models you know with when exhibits mm-hmm. that someone has to actually create that stuff and figure out what all the biology is and learn know enough about it in the combination of exhibits and scientists can do this and so by mixing all those things together that's what you get it you know that's the best thing that the field museum can do it can take the best videos and photos that anyone in the world's taken combine that with scientific knowledge, actual specimens, and create sort of this, you know, show all the different parts of this thing. As a museum goer, coming to a museum, it's like I get to see all this real stuff at once, like evolving planet. I walk f- through years and years and years of evolution, and here at the Film Museum, for example, and all that stuff is real. When, when we get exhibitions from outside museums, other institutions, for example, we always try to add something museum content. And sometimes uh, what drives us what drives us is let's add some real real artifacts, for example, real specimens in an exhibition that is replica heavy. And so because people want to want to come here to see the real things. And, that's, and so, that's exactly what we have with Creatures of Light because these things are so beaten up and they're so small. Right. That it's a, it, I understand completely why the exhibit looks like that, but that's like, wow, this is how we can make it a little special here while it's visiting the Field Museum. And in our exhibitions, we, we only have room for just a handful of these things. So videos and technology can help us communicate that behind the scene, there are 24 million <laughs> Things that tell similar stories, essentially each of them have an individual story that if we could, we would like to tell. But and I think that's really important, actually. The, the whole idea of what they're seeing as a representation of what actually lives behind the scenes here, which is a full collection that are researched by people from all over the world, not just ourselves, but that's an international treasure. That What goes on behind the scenes of a museum like this? 
And I think it's hard to, when you try and capture the public's attention to research going on through the videos, I mean, it's not like I can stand out there or any one of us can stand out there and say, oh, there's research going on. Because mm -hmm. at some level, if we did that, we would they would start looking like fake scientists, like with like, you know, polo shirts that say like, I'm a scientist, or, you know, and they're obviously out there every day. So they're polo not really shirts, doing that. That's the answer. I mean, so like, that's why something like the DNA Discovery Center or the McDonald's, McDonald's prep lab, lab yeah. um, where you actually have, in one case, scientists working, in one case, you have people that are preparing the specimens. You know, there's times when the DNA Discovery Center where we, where people do talk and explain what they're doing, but it's not like we couldn't possibly do that all day long. Otherwise, we're getting the work done. So do you think all scientists would be better if they had to do more outreach and, and you know, interacting? I mean, not maybe <laughs> with the public straight away, but, you know, working with, like, an exhibit team. Some scientists teams have personality problems. Let's be honest. Well, that's what I mean. Not, <laughs> yeah. like, directly, but if, if they were forced to go through this process of developing an exhibit. I don't know if, it's, if anyone's forced to. I mean, I kind of think we self-select to want to be at a museum because we like that. I think every scientist should think more broadly. I mean, it's got to be better to think in terms of your impact on life. You can't, that, I mean, I think one of the criticisms always of scientists is that they kind of go in and get their blinders on and start focusing on little details that no one cares about, except for them, that matter. I'm not saying they don't matter, but they build upon each other, and it's hard to see the iterative improvement of that as an administrator or something. But if the more that people do take a step back and look, I think the better off we are. Everybody is interesting. Even the most non-public friendly scientists, you know, the ones you don't think of as being... Yeah, those are more interesting to me as a psychiatrist. A... <laughs> I think most people actually have, have a lot, but they're, they're very interesting. I mean, everybody's path is different to get to where they they are and there's no there's and it's full of chance events and so what you want to tell people about is you got to pay attention to the random things that happen to you because there are messages and all of those that can help you figure out what it is that you want to be so don't ignore the little small things that happen so so how did you get into exhibit stuff oh yeah how did i get well it goes back when i was in italy <laughs> I came to the U.S. for the first time in 2004. I went to what I call an American museum. Uh, coming from Italy slash Europe, the museums are very different, especially in Italy. They're like mostly art history museums. So natural history museums in America are so different, fascinating, full of huge things and, and just displays that I could never think of. And so, dreaming about this enthusiasm for American museums, I applied for an internship at a film museum. And in 2008, I arrived here. I was, uh, I was an intern on the Mavis and Mastons exhibition. And that, the process of working with the curators, of working on something that I was passionate about, kind of made me fall in love with this profession and so are you more biologically trained or more like art I, trained I have or archaeology archaeology <laughs> my background is archaeology and economics but let's say archaeology fits better <laughs> archaeoeconomics yeah. 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 i mean yeah. if you think about it historically when these specimens were first put into collections or displayed like this this was before people traveled widely and so the reports that people had of how in this case how birds might have behaved or lived well those were fanciful at best right because you had some of this stuff is 
if, if you didn't actually see it, you wouldn't believe that it could actually be the case, that they would look and sound and behave the way they do. And so the only connection that people would have to the, these faraway places is through displays like this Birds of the World display that's in, in the museum. Otherwise, people had no access mm-hmm. to that. Now, of course, with video, technology has made the world a lot smaller. But, and that, but I think at some level that still enhances people's need for authenticity, to actually come to a place where they know they're seeing the real thing. But I think that's a really important part of the history of museums, is that they did give people access to things that they never would have seen. They could go places they never could have gone. And now we just go even weirder places. So that whole exploration thing hasn't stopped, and that's another unique element, I think, of, of natural history museums like the Field Museum. Is so how do you think exhibit design has changed here? over the last, like, 100 years. Because, like, I, Eric was earlier was talking about the classical exhibit. It, but there, it's, the, it's, on some levels, I, I, there's parts of me that like those kinds of old-style of a museum exhibit better. But is there information? I'm not criticizing that at all. It's, like, awe-inspiring, like, in a, from a diversity perspective. So this, no, but it's also just a way of presenting the information. I would say that museums nowadays tend to make their exhibits more entertainment than actually focused on the actual material. And I would say that in the Field Museum, there are exhibits that are very classical in their presentation of material versus ones that are very entertainment-focused. If you were walking around the Field Museum right now, I think there are areas of the museum that are very kind of old school in terms of their exhibit mm-hmm. design, maybe, say, the botany area, yeah. versus the new conservation area is very kind of entertainment, very artistic, is not... I would not say that's an old school way of presenting an exhibit. Yeah, it's definitely not not the old way, definitely. So like how do you like when you're designing a new exhibit, how do you take that into account? Like what's the kind of design philosophy now like for renovating a bird exhibit or designing a whole new exhibit from scratch? I would say that probably entertainment is not a good word, but engaging is a better word. Oh, okay. Probably. Botany is definitely one of the oldest uh, oldest uh, exhibits that we have. Yeah, I would say some of the geology ones too. Uh, like the- yeah, probably botany at the moment is probably the oldest that we have in the building. I'm not sure. No. Yeah, well, that's certainly possibly. the one that always comes up when yeah. people are talking about what the, needs to be modernized. Yeah. <laughs> the China cases are also yeah. uh, examples of museology <laughs> kind of things. We're kind of uh, lucky from the perspective because you see kind of the evolution of museology in this, in this building. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing. There's a lot of diversity of types of exhibits here. Like, yeah. I don't, you don't just get like one sense of one type of an exhibit, like, yeah, or one philosophy behind things. Like, you can kind of feel that things are from different time periods. I think when you walk through museums, this one in particular, well, just because I spent the most time here, but you get a feel for the personality of the place in the exhibits, and I think that's actually a really important part of exhibit design is not having it look like it could come from everywhere. Yeah. Um, but you start to feel things about the institution and the people behind the scenes when you go through the exhibit. And I think that is why it's so important that the exhibit staff work with the scientific staff. I think it's why it's so important that curators are involved in every exhibit, that we don't bring in outside people, that we actually develop the expertise in-house to, to be part of the science or the exhibit has to alter to better fit the science um, behind the scenes, maybe. But 
Yeah, I mean, there's some old things that can have new stories told from mm -hmm. them that are fantastic. It's not the objects, you know. And because everybody learns through time, well, museums should change through time, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I think it's just interesting the way that exhibits have changed. Like, the concept of natural history museums has changed a lot in terms of how information sure. is presented, and I think that's kind of interesting. And I think one thing that I, I like that this museum does and, and keeps is the physical interactives mm -hmm. that you have in, in almost um, every exhibit. Kind of going along this thread, you're going to see something real. You know, I'm also coming to natural history museums now Don't to play touch. with gigantic <laughs> toys, basically. And there's something that's just so much fun about playing with a gigantic toy where you actually learn something from. Or like I the can't, giant whale heart crawling through the whale Yeah, heart. I can't crawl through a whale heart. I can't play with the make it rain machine, as <laughs> I call it, from the Hall of Conservation, which I well, love. It's like um, I've been to dozens of, well, probably more than dozens of zoos over the years, and every zoo has more or less the same kinds of things. Like sometimes they have a few different museums have specific artifacts or specific exhibits that become really memorable. Like mm -hmm. there is only one zoo. Like mm -hmm. there's only one lines of Savo. Yeah, lines of Savo. Like th those are the kinds of things people come to the field museum for. And I think um, that's why it's important to have real exhibit people here and real scientists here making the exhibits because we can, you know, any place can be a venue for the traveling exhibit. And that's why we have to update the permanent halls and we have to make our own temporary exhibits. And, you know, like I think the mummies was, a, you know, the most recent just sort of on the fly decided to make this hall because we had an opening and they did it unbelievably fast. And I think... Yeah, and those are all field museum specimens, right? Yeah, I mean, everything had to be done in-house because we didn't have time to do with anything. I mean, mm -hmm. exhibit, yeah, I've never seen... It was small, but great. Yeah, it was really nice. I've never... That was like the most impressive thing... But that was an interesting blend, I would say, too, of like a kind of an older school approach to presenting the information, like having everything out there, but also integrating new technology, yeah. like with the CT scans, but also That's having the so actual cool. specimens on display, too. Like it was a good blend of kind of an older. Yeah, it was nice because it was an older style display case, yeah. but you could walk all the way around it. No, and and I, but I, it personally, I like that kind of thing. I like to see it. I think it's clear everybody liked it, though. I mean, that, yeah. that was the thing yeah. is like, how do we, you know, that's one of the things we go like, how do we imitate that now and replace do that? And the problem is we can't if we. That's a horrible strategy. <laughs> it's like, it's just but it's opportunistic, and, and institutions should be able to shape change based on current right. conditions. And I that's mean, the thing. Just uh, so, uh, uh, relative to what Matt was saying before, I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I know a lot of people uh, who think that museums these days, not the field museums specifically, but museums these days are dumbing down their exhibits. I heard that comment too. <laughs> That it's, it's getting, it's focusing more on this early, early childhood and trying to appeal to a broad section of the yeah, population. It's more things. and more trying to become an integrated, engaging opportunity for all kinds of stuff, but it's not teaching the way it used to. What do you think? I would say, like, for example, like, I was recently at the Denver Museum, which I'm from Colorado, so I used to go there a lot when I was a kid. And going back there now, you know, the exhibits have changed a little bit. But, for example, they used to have a very kind of traditional outer space kind of space exhibit and they completely renovated it in the last 10 years now it's a very like it's very flashy and it's definitely aimed now at kind of a younger probably kids age thing you know it, it's probably more engaging for kids than what the previous exhibit was but like I was far less interested in it. Yeah, well, but we're, were, we're getting old and grumpy though. Yeah, but there were tons. There were tons of kids running around there that seemed to love it. And so like maybe you want to have things that hit different different demographics in a museum. That, for example, for the Bird Hall, we tried that approach, uh, creating activities that 
in, for example, the digital labels, we have three different types of games. One is definitely oriented to a very, very young audience. We usually set an audience goal, like this exhibit for the nature of the content is for kids seven years and older, for example. Or um, this content can work also for five-year-olds. So we have most of the times a specific audience in mind. The, I think that the biggest answer is like the the involvement of visitors' uh, input, essentially not not really input, but like their their involvement and how they can be involved without feeling like they're in a classroom in the exhibit that kind of is dictating that moving away from the 400 word labels and they're like going towards more designed labels that have different like a hierarchy of information so that uh, if you're a mom with a two years old for example you want to get <laughs> what the label says you want to get something and out of the exhibit that you're spending time at and okay the header is your way into getting some kind of context for what you're looking at that helps you communicating with your kid for example well two years old maybe but also two years old like we are trying to get to them for example with the shapes and they build the bird game in the bird hall so it's like overall exhibits are getting more visitors oriented than they used to be and people think that that is kind of dumbing them down, but actually it's not. It's like more going to more going straight to a point to that main point that is behind the, the details somehow, like trying to get to what is meaningful for them as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, and I, it's I, probably got fewer words, but that doesn't mean it's dumber. Well, being, no, yes. <laughs> being child friendly doesn't mean it's it's dumb. No, right? and I exactly. think that's a yeah. perception that you know people have, and that's changing rapidly right now in education. You know that the only way you can learn is by like watching you know, participating in a lecture or reading something really long where there are much better ways of learning and much more effective ways of learning. And yeah, I mean, I also think it. that this is probably one of the places where some sort of the future of technology might help a little. I don't know whether it'll be augmented reality apps or near-field communication. I'm pretty sure it won't be QR codes, but it might be QR codes. Like if someone really wants to dive deep into something, we could put something out with a little less polish maybe, like where we don't waste, it's not wasted time. I mean, it, but like if we would just have, you know, a curator or exhibits or educator, whoever knew something about whatever it was, just go out and say something that someone could access if they wanted more information. But the problem with all that stuff is, you know, we're going to have 16 people coming with a smartphone that are willing to do that on any given day. And you have no idea that there's like, I don't have no idea how many things are on display, but there's what, 50, 100,000 things on display. You're going to really say something about each individual one. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Store all that somewhere. I mean, Actually, that's, maybe. I'm but that's what I mean. There's like, that's where technology could, prov- mm-hmm. you know, but we have to, we have to sort of release ourselves of the stress of the perfect text or whatever. Yeah. We just have to be like, well, let's just talk about some of these things. Just have someone go around well, and fill, basically crowdsource. Like, yeah, no, just crowdsource yeah. it. You know, just like, you know, I always think that like we should just like randomly walk around and just like record thoughts on things and then everyone else thing just goes up there. <laughs> you know, people here, like, we don't, so we don't, you know, we don't want, that. well, I don't know, maybe the public's fine too as long as they're vetted somehow, but like, <laughs> but, you well, know, you the people want to come here for... From, from things like that when people are just 
going through their own minds. You can you can see things that you never thought of before. I mean, I think one That's, of the reasons you come here besides the specimens is you want vetted data. Anyone can go do a Google yeah. search and find an image and something, but you don't know if it's true anymore. And it's like, I think what we have is sort of, the, one of our colleagues made yeah, the equivalent point. of like the, the Mayo Clinic. You go there, you trust the name Mayo Clinic for your medical advice. Like the Field Museum has a, you know, an, like honest to goodness biodiversity knowledge or anthropology knowledge that we can just sort of throw out there and be accurate about and you know people can trust that that information is real and so I think that gets your whole dumbing down thing I mean I think that that we have a challenge of bringing people into this building because our survival kind of depends on on the revenue that comes from traffic inside of our building okay but what's going to make people come inside the building when they can sit in their computers the reality Mm -hmm. is that their ability to sit at their computers and look at us and see us through our website, through other forms of digital presence that we have, is going to drive traffic inside of our building, too. And so we have to be, we'll be seen as that authority and that excellence and have these varying kinds of educational opportunities for people in lots of different fora, not just inside of our space. But but people's web presence can drive people inside of the space. I think that goes back to Beth's devil advocacy though too like people aren't coming here to look at photographs like they're coming here to look at specimens Mm -hmm. like they want to come here to see what we have to show them whether that's sewer lions sabo or birds or anything like that's what you have like that you can give to them yeah Yeah. and you know to your point that that's another big thing that changed over time like interactives uh, as they you, you talked about uh, physical, mechanical interactives. Mm-hmm. Yes, we always try to have that experience because learning by experience is definitely something that changed. And that still, with keeping visitors in mind and like what is going to stick with them. But mm-hmm. right? at the end of the day, when they go back to the museum, it's like, that experience so like creating the experience for visitors is what we're trying to do and what we try to do for bird hall but every every single exhibition it's like what is the ultimate goal of, of the experience of a visitor who comes in and and, and I, comes to this exhibit and i think like the physical well i like the physical ones a lot but every once in a while the, the, i think we totally nail the digital one so like when oh, i think yeah. when oh, you yeah. did the load mosaic like i got to play a little part in that but it was you know i don't know i think it was john bates and paula like helped design this table where you built your own load mosaic and it made perfect sense to do it that way and being able to use the touch screen to expand and, mm-hmm. and shrink things and make the like take you know sort of email you your own load mosaic was like the, the, the classic example that if it had just been blocks that that would have been fun to a certain degree but there would have only been like you know 16 yeah. options 16 yeah. possibilities mm-hmm. and i think that one nailed it and, you know, I have this tendency to like the physical things, but I think, you know, in that case, you guys did a great job. With the well, the physical music. thing was there. It yeah. was a good synthesis of yeah. interaction and uh, having the and, physical and, and the digital thing is just another interactive. It's just another yeah. type of right. interactive. It doesn't right. take away from the yeah, other the physical right. thing. No, yeah. no, but you always have, it's always good to have a balance, too, because different oh, people like different things, like, you know, cranky old guys like you. Yeah, and, and you know, got to keep that, but you have to keep, you know, other, you know, different types of interactive things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how large the exhibit is so it really you're appealing to to everybody that somebody finds something that they really connect with 
Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I joke about the cranky old guy thing, but I mean, I think it's I think it's legitimate. I am I I am part of a, a, a aging crankier demographic. Where part of our part of our complaints is based on our old fashioned view of things. This is the way it was when I was a kid, and I don't like things to change. It's, well, that's the trick. I mean, everyone, you know, you get this weird subset of people that come here and tell us that we got to change it more often. But like most people come here like three or four times in their life, mm-hmm. and. They get the, you know, right. if they're the kind of person that came here like seven or eight times and came here a handful of times one year when they were yeah, a kid, we came they get mad when we change it. Every time. Yeah, yeah, but sure. yeah, but like that's the thing is like they get mad when you change it. I mean, it's, it's like, you, you know, for every 50% of the people that come visit, they want us to update things every, you know, want a new museum, like demolish this one and build a new one on top of it next year for their next visit. You get 30% of people that get freaked out that you change the botany hall. Yeah, how dare you move this statue from this side of the museum? Yeah, but it happens. Museum, I mean, right? like, it's true. Right, the brontosaurus. So it used to be here, and they used to call it this. And then moved it I got really angry when they changed the Hall of Gems, even though it's beautiful now and it's totally better than it was. I loved that when I was a kid. Yeah, it was so I mysterious I was going and dark. In a cave. Yeah. 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 I was like, I didn't see it before, and I haven't been in like it. Some sort of raven. <laughs> a lot of people don't like the posture that Sue has. Really? Right. Why they want the old, yeah, the old perchy one? Because that's not nah. what they grew up with thinking nah, about. Yeah. Or their their Rama from downstairs still you know, has a, a lot of people posture. are really upset that pets <laughs> don't define birds anymore. So this how do you define a bird? It's not it's not that's not an easy no uh, thing to I actually think it's easy do. To fish. Is that in the new bird hall? It, well, it will be. It will be. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, because the definition of birds are not feathers anymore. So this you is know, true. You have to get to smaller elements of their anatomy to, to decide what a bird is. That's yeah, a bit it weird. Still works. Just put birds further down. This We'll take credit for almost all dinosaurs now. That's fine even, <laughs> even the other lineage of dinosaurs have yeah, yeah, we're showing some feathers. Yeah, dinosaurs yeah. are sexy. Everybody likes dinosaurs. Yeah, why do you want to separate yourself from dinosaurs? Don't be crazy. Dinosaurs and monkeys. Birds and dinosaurs. Just stop there. Just go straight to herpetology. Yeah, just put yourself in herpetology. We're all fish, right, Leo? That's what you can say. Tetrapods. We're all fish. If you want to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish, tweet us your question or send us a topic suggestion at fm underscore what the fish. So if you're enjoying our podcast, you can also find us on iTunes. And if you're enjoying it and you are on iTunes, please uh, rate and give us a comment. And for this week, so long and thanks for all the fish.